started, let me ask you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 um, and go to verses 1 to 5. As I grab my water. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 to 5. And as you get there, let me just quickly uh, remind you of why we've been doing this series on the church. We are about five um, sermons into this topic, and including tonight, we'll have about three more before we finish. Um, And I want to remind you so that we don't forget and we stay on topic, that the church is a really important topic. And you could describe that three ways just to sum up. One is that the church is a really important topic, biblically speaking. And what I mean is the Bible says that the church is really important. Basically, the entire New Testament is written to the church, God's people, um, and they need to understand how important the church is to God. God is doing something huge in his story, and the church is an extremely important part of what God is doing. And it also matters spiritually. And what I mean is for your spiritual life. The church matters because if you are going to obey God, if you are going to enjoy Christ, um, then you need to be with other believers, not only in terms of accountability, but in terms of encouragement and conviction and joy. All of the things God has in store for you involves being with the people of God. And so the church is also super important to you, spiritually speaking. But the third reason that the church is really important is you could say it's of practical importance. And what I mean is that many of you, if not most of you, are here tonight or you come to church on Sundays because your parents told you to. That's really one of the chief motivations, not for all of you, but for many of you who grew up in the church. And because of that, you need to understand that one day you're not going to be with your family anymore. You're going to Uh, probably be out of the house with your own life, whether you go to college or you just start living independently. And you need more than just a knowledge that church is relevant. You need a passionate desire to be in a church, a local church, to know why that matters and to be passionate about being involved in that church. And that means you need to be able to spot a healthy church. You need to be able to appoint at a church and say, they're in conformity to God's plan. They know what's most important. And even though they are weak and they are sinners just like me, I know I can trust them and how God is using them in his plan. You need to be able to do that. And you could call that the practical understanding of the church. And that's really the idea I want to maximize in the last three topics that we have. I want to just talk about three. There's many topics but three topics that can help you practically uh, know what a healthy church is or what it needs. And the reason we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is because the first of those three is to know what preaching is. And I don't just mean preaching what you like. I mean preaching what God says is faithful. Because the reality is a lot of people have different preaching preferences and biases And especially in Orange County and in many other places in the United States, um, people will choose a church just because the person who is preaching has a personality that they like or they are constantly talking about the topics that they like. Um, And it's fine to have preferences and biases, but you also need to ultimately understand what faithful preaching is. And there's way more parts of preaching that are essential that you need to be able to discern that make it 
what God says is good preaching and not just what we like. And Paul really digs into those things in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in the first five verses. So let me read them to you, and then I'll help you understand what the point that Paul is trying to make. And then from then, we'll grab a couple applications from that so that you can understand the kind of church and the kind of preaching that you need to sit under. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And this is Paul, and this is what he says. And I... When I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that... Your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul here is trying to explain to the people who lived in Corinth what good preaching was. Corinth was a city in the ancient Near East that was kind of like a combination of Hollywood and New York. It was a town that really cared about popularity. It was an exciting place to be, and it was especially exciting because people loved to talk about new ideas and discuss those new ideas, whether it be philosophy or the latest trends. And there were a lot of different ways that people talked and a lot of different speakers. And so speaking and conversation and ideas in general were all very, very exciting. But the problem was there is a form of that that was very popular. And when Paul came to share his own truth that he received from God for uh, unbelievers, he came in probably the most unpopular package that you can imagine. And you could ultimately break down why Paul would have been so unpopular in Corinth for three reasons. And they all had to deal with what the Corinthians liked to hear and how they liked to hear it. So the first of those things is that the Corinthians loved fancy talkers. That's one way to describe them, fancy talkers. They liked certain people sharing messages. For example, they liked people who were attractive, which ultimately came down to not only physical appearance, but physical fitness. Greeks especially loved um, people who were athletic. And so if you were speaking and you had a background in that, you were immediately popular. They also believed that people who were popular had political or uh, royal connections. Those were some of the things that made people famous. But they also liked people with good reputations, people who were considered uh, very wise by other people. And people would come to see those kinds of people. And that was a big reason why people weren't super excited by nature to listen to Paul. Because Paul didn't really have any of those qualities. You know, there's not a whole bunch in um, the uh, ancient histories that explained what Paul looked like, but there are a couple. And as far as we know from that, and especially from the biblical record, Uh, Paul was apparently a short guy, not very physically impressive, and one person even said he's not very attractive, which would have hurt my feelings, but Paul didn't seem to care. Um, But what was even more important than any of that was that Paul had a not very great reputation. If you read all of the things that talked about Paul, he didn't seem like a popular guy, uh, considering all the places he went, he was rejected, He was assaulted, he was attacked, 
He was imprisoned all over the place. And when you're a guy with a reputation like that coming to try and share with people, you won't seem very popular. And so the Corinthians would have taken one look at Paul or heard his background, and that would have been strike one. The second thing that Corinthians really liked to hear was fancy talk, not just the person um, that was sharing the message, um, but also the way that they shared the message. Because we might think that basically sharing anything out of your mouth is just all the same kind of method, but there was a ton of different ways to speak um, in this period of time. It was called oratory. And people really cared if you were really good at speaking or bad in how you spoke. For example, people really liked poetry. So you might hate it in school, um, but Greeks and pagans, they loved it. And they thought you had to be really skilled to speak poetically. It was a way to take words and put them in very beautiful packages. People also liked hearing something called dialogue, which was like two guys, almost like a play, talking to each other. And it was a way to teach different people. And many, many famous works that we still have today are in the form of dialogue. There was also something called rhetoric, which was basically a form of public speaking in which people tried to um, address you logically and morally and in your emotions. They tried to attach themselves to all of those things to make you believe what they were saying to you and to move you and to have you affected by their words. And the other was drama, which was basically putting on plays or doing monologues. And those ones were super popular because even emperors, when they were going to die, would write in their will, please make sure you put on a play about me because they knew how powerful those kinds of presentations were for people to love the emperor who died. And then there was a fifth form, and it was called proclamation. And proclamation was the most boring of all of the ways to speak. Proclamation was basically pulling out a scroll and sharing exactly what was on the scroll. Um, it was necessary to have proclamation because the people who sent proclamations were important, maybe a captain in the army or even the emperor himself. But to be the messenger or the herald, you didn't really need a lot of skill. All you needed was a loud voice. Um, and you might be sharing information that was necessary, um, but you yourself weren't really very important. And the fact was that Paul's style was closest to proclamation. Preaching and proclamation are very similar. And even though Christians can take great hope in that, as we'll explain later, that was the most boring form of public speaking imaginable. So that's the Corinthians looking at Paul, seeing him as a proclaimer, and saying, that's strike two. But strike three was probably the worst. And that had to do with the content of what Paul was talking about, the message he was actually proclaiming. And the way you could explain the messages that Corinthians liked, you could call them God's talk. God's talk, plural. Corinthians loved to talk about the gods. There were many of them, and none of them had all of the power. There was a god of architecture, for example, and then there was a god of agriculture, and there was a god of money. There were gods for everything, and they kind of divided up all of the areas in society that they cared about, um, and each one of them were basically worshipped individually. But each one of them were still considered very strong and very in charge, and they were basically always on top. But the reason Corinthians loved to talk about the gods so much had little to do with the gods and much more to do with them. Because ultimately, their religion was based on 
being blessed. They like talking about gods because the gods gave them stuff. If you worshiped them, you would get stuff. For example, if you prayed to the god of agriculture, then your farming business would be hype. If you prayed to the god of architecture, then your building plan would come to fruition. Whichever god you prayed to would bless you. And that means that a lot of pagan and Greek religion was about themselves. They didn't really worship the gods, they worshiped themselves. And that's why you can see in their idols and in their architecture, those gods look a lot like themselves. And that was a huge reason why Paul's message to them would have been very unrealistic and very ridiculous. Because ultimately in verse five, Paul sums up his whole message as Jesus Christ was crucified. That's the summation of Paul's message. God told, call, uh, God told Paul to go to the Gentiles and to go to Corinth and explain that there was one God who is all-powerful and almighty, and yet that God decided to leave heaven, come to earth, put on weak, finite humanity, and then die. God came and died, and that was against everything that they believed, everything they thought was rational, everything they thought was moral, everything they thought was logical, all of that didn't make sense with Paul's message of Jesus Christ was crucified. As one commentator explained it, a God who made sense to them would never come and die. Jesus Christ was a God who did not make sense. He continued to explain it this way, no mere human in his or her right mind would otherwise have ever dreamed up God's scheme for redemption, which was through a crucified Messiah. It is too preposterous, too humiliating for a God. Christ crucified is a contradiction in terms, like saying fried ice. You can't put ice on an oven. You can't believe in a God who died. But if you're a Christian, I think and I hope you understand that this is everything to Christianity. Christians understand that even though it does seem like no one could ever make up Jesus Christ dying on the cross, not only did that in fact happen, that is necessary. And as Christians, we understand why Jesus dying on the cross was necessary. Because if we are going to be good and just and holy before God and we've sinned, our sin must be punished by that God. And so when Jesus Christ came and died on the cross, he was punished for our sins so that God would remain just in punishing sin, and yet we would still be blameless towards that holy God. Christians understand the necessity of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. However, that was in fact the most obnoxious, humiliating, and offensive part of Paul's message. And it's important to know why, because it's the same reason that the gospel is offensive today, and if you believe the gospel, you will offend people. Which is that to believe in a crucified Messiah, you must also admit you're a sinner. You must also admit that this thing, sin, is a huge deal. The way R.C. Sproul once explained it, cosmic treason. Sin is a big deal. And even though Christ dealt with it, I still have to admit that I've committed it. And it's a big deal. And as one commentator said, 
The crucified Christ is good to nobody but sinners. He's good to no one unless they acknowledge his or her sin. And the human heart does not want to admit that we've sinned or that sin is a big deal. And that reason is ultimately what's going to be so important when Paul is explaining not just the message that good preaching entails, but why the message is explained in a certain way. Because the same reason that people reject the gospel is the same thing that affects the way they speak. Let me explain this just a little bit. Paul argues that he's not going to speak a different message, but he's also not going to speak in a certain way. He says he's not going to speak with human wisdom or lofty speech. And ultimately, he's saying, I'm not drawing attention to myself. And that gets down to the connection between what we speak and how we speak it. And the one word that sums that up is this idea of pride. Pride is the key word here. Pride is the reason we don't want to accept the gospel. And pride is the reason the Corinthians didn't want to accept the gospel. And that pride is also the reason that we speak a certain way and we speak about certain things and we speak them for a certain reason. The same pride by which people reject the gospel also results in speaking things that aren't true and speaking them for selfish purposes. Ultimately, man rejects the gospel because of our pride because we don't want God, but there's things we do want, right? We want respect. We want pleasure. We want self-fulfillment. And we want control of our own lives. And that desire affects what we talk about, how we speak, and why we talk about it. That's what Paul is getting at when he says, I'm not speaking with the wisdom of men. I'm not speaking as if I depended on myself or I'm confident about humans' ability to reason. That's arrogance. I need God to help me think correctly. And if I rely on man's wisdom or man's reason, I can't rely on God's reason and God's thinking. That's also why he doesn't speak with lofty speech, which is fancy talking in order to gain a better reputation. The reason people speak with lofty speech is because selfishly, they want to look good in front of people. And Paul didn't care about looking good in front of people. The Corinthians, as a model for everyone, and not just them, they wanted to hear messages about themselves that benefited them, and they liked them coming from messengers who looked like them, walked like them, talked like them, appealed to their pride, and who lived in a way that they wanted to live. And the reason Paul doesn't live like them or walk like them or talk about them is because he has a totally different motivation than human speakers or philosophers or rhetoricians. Because Paul doesn't want to give people what they want to hear. Paul wants to give people what they need to hear. That affects what you say, and it affects how you say it. He says in verse five, your faith cannot rest in the wisdom of men. Your faith must rest in the power of God and your faith can rest in the power of God if you believe the gospel. He explains this previously in 1 Corinthians chapter one, verse 21, 
which is a verse that kind of sums up basically everything he's talked about before, where he says this, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul is comparing human wisdom and God's wisdom. He's saying man's wisdom comes from man's broken, sinful hearts. So its benefit is incredibly limited, and where it's especially limited is in salvation. Without God, I can't come to the knowledge I need to be saved. So man's wisdom is irrelevant to me. But what is relevant is the truth of the gospel, because that is what he calls the wisdom of the cross. No matter how illogical it seems to me, it's logical to God, who has perfect reasoning and has accomplished a perfect plan. And therefore, in God's amazing wisdom, not only did he provide a message that can save you, but he proved how powerful it is to save you. And amazingly, the way he did that is by presenting people to preach that message who were very unpopular and were very unfashionable and were not very likable and were not what you expect. But when those people explain to you the gospel and you actually understand it and it actually makes sense, and then most importantly, you believe it and you hold on to it and it changes your life, that's supernatural. And if you can trust that message, regardless of how unpopular it is, regardless about how perfect a speaker, the person sharing it is, then you know you don't have to trust the person. You can trust the message. The way Alistair Begg said it is, a faith that depends on clever reasoning will simply be demolished by a cleverer argument. Only God opens blind eyes and only God softens hard hearts. And that is why Paul focused on clearly explaining the gospel rather than making himself or his speech more popular because the power was in God's truth, not in himself and not in his speaking skill. Now, just to be incredibly clear for a clarification here, that doesn't mean that being good at speaking is a problem. In fact, God gives a gift of speaking to many different people, and it's also a skill that we should improve. For example, one way to explain this is persuasion. Being able to persuade people, that's a good thing. And in fact, that was Paul's style as he came to the Corinthians to explain the message of the gospel. And in fact, everywhere he went, he persuaded people. For example, in Acts chapter 18, verse 11, it explains that Paul came to Corinth, he stayed a year and six months, and he was teaching the word of God among them. But it explains further in verse four that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul had skill in being able to explain the clarity of the gospel. And he explains later when he goes to Ephesus and to Athens in uh, Acts chapter 19 for eight, for example. Paul entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly and he was reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So Paul had the ability to speak well. That's not the issue that Paul is trying to point out. The important thing is that the power to convince people isn't about Paul's skill. Ultimately, the power is in the gospel. The power is in the message, not the human messenger. Therefore, all Paul has to do is focus on one thing, 
making the gospel clear. If the gospel's clear, God's power will be demonstrated when people believe it. That's why Paul refused human wisdom and lofty speech and persuasive words of wisdom, because it can only persuade people to look in a direction that can't save them. But persuasion that is built on pointing away from the preacher and towards the cross and towards Christ, that points people to the person who can save them, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, that's the purpose of what Paul is trying to explain in these passages. And now I want to explain why this matters for you. Because many of you, if not any of you maybe, will be preachers one day. I totally understand that. However, you are going to be, for the rest of your life, listening to someone and listening to some message. Many of them, in fact. Every single day you go out into the world, you are hearing messages, and they are shaping your worldview. And more than that, they are shaping what you believe in. And honestly, it's doing it whether you notice it or not. And I'm not just talking about leaders in your life. I'm not just talking about your teachers or in the future, your professors. I'm not just talking about you going on YouTube and listening to experts talk about things. I'm talking about entertainment, the things you listen to, whether it's movies or TV or podcasts or music or whether you're having conversations with your friends and they are simply telling you why they like certain things so much. All of those things are messages from messengers that are affecting your faith. And you need to be able to understand with discernment from scripture and dependent on the Holy Spirit what messages are according to God and which aren't. Because ultimately, you can't stop hearing messages from the world. But you can stop having faith in what the world believes in. The world's faith honestly always moves away from God and always goes towards gods that look way too much like us. And we can't save us. But ultimately, all of those messages from the world are trying to turn us to trust in ourselves. And we are not good at being God. That's why Christ came, and that's why Paul's tactic was not like the world. He didn't appeal to their pride. He didn't appeal to their self-sufficiency. He didn't use flattery. He didn't use deceit. And he didn't use pleasure or popularity or our desire to be autonomous to convince you of a message that wasn't true in the first place. Paul explained God told him to come with purity and without deceit to explain to you a truth that could save you and a person who is alive now who is willing to save anyone who comes to him. So I want to take some of that information and I want to give you a couple of distinctives so that one day when you have to look for a church by yourself and you need to understand if this is preaching that though imperfect is faithful, you need to be able to identify what that preaching should look like and certain things that it cannot go without. I want to share three things to you in pairs Because what I want to give you is a balance. I want to give you two words at a time that I think will balance out what good preaching is. Not according to my opinion or perspectives, but I think drawn from what Paul is trying to get at in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. So let me explain them to you two at a time. And the first one is this. Good preaching is expositional and simple. It is expositional and simple. 
That PowerPoint looks great, by the way. Let's draw attention to it for a sec. I think many of you guys have heard expositional or expository preaching. I think you've heard of that before. But just to be clear for some of you who might not know what that means, expository preaching means to unfold the original meaning of the text for the listeners and apply it to their lives. So what that means is taking the Bible and then not just spinning out someone's opinions, but taking the Bible, believing that God is saying something specifically, and we can understand it with honest, humble study, and then give people listening what the Bible says so that it would affect their lives for the better and for eternity. That's what expository preaching is. And it involves teaching all the Bible accurately and consistently. One text people go to all the time is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, that the man of God might be equipped for every good work. So the idea is anywhere you go in the Bible, it's going to be helpful if you understand what God meant to explain in it. Not our opinions of the text, but what God put that text in the Bible for a specific reason. And that's why expository preaching often looks like people preaching through a whole book of the Bible, sequentially. Because you want to see all of the amazing details, and you want to see them over time, and you want them to build upon each other so the preacher doesn't make a case, but God himself, through his word, makes a case to you. So you would see how full and glorious his plan of salvation really is. That's expository preaching. But at the same time, you should also be looking for simple preaching. And the reason is this. Imagine if you were doing a puzzle with a friend and you really wanted to complete the puzzle. And every time your friend picked up a piece, they just started staring super intently at the piece and they're like, wow, this piece is amazing, it's so good. And in the meantime, they're like looking around trying to figure out where it fits in, but they take no time to like pull up the picture of the puzzle in the box so they see what the picture is supposed to look like. And they're just staring at this piece and you're thinking, we are never gonna finish this puzzle because you don't know what this puzzle is supposed to look like and you are too stuck on this single piece. Sometimes preaching can be like that. People can get so excited and enamored with certain details that they kind of forget what everything is going towards. Because honestly, when you understand the Bible, all of the details are very exciting. But they are most exciting and they make the most sense when you see the whole picture where everything is going towards. And that's what I mean by simple, getting to the one specific central point, which is that all of the pieces are leading to Jesus Christ. Expositional and simple. Paul preached both of those things. He explained in chapter two that he came to them and he was among them. Acts 18.11 clarifies that he was with them for one year and six months. And during that time, he would have taught them from the Bible they had, which was the Old Testament and ultimately the accounts of the Gospels. And Paul walked through all of the details of the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfilled all of those details. And even though he loved explaining to them all of this background, Paul never lost sight of the fact that his central message was nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The pieces are amazing, but they are all getting towards the fact that God came, took on human flesh, and died for our sins. 
Paul doesn't mean he didn't preach literally anything except the gospel. He's saying everything eventually led to the gospel. That was the point he maximized. And so ultimately when those two things come together, it leads to this. Good preaching explains the details without losing sight of Christ. You need to understand how full the testimony of God is that Paul proclaimed, he says in verse two, but ultimately all of that leads to knowing exactly how Christ fulfilled these things. So those are the first two distinctives. You should look for good preaching, a faithful church that is expository and simple. Now the second one is a little bit trickier, so I wanna spend a little bit, a couple extra minutes explaining what I mean by this. So stick with me as I explain this to you, all right? The, the next point is this. Good preaching is conscionable and spiritual. Conscionable and spiritual. Now, conscionable might sound like a, a big word, but conscionable sounds like conscience, right? So conscionable preaching just means preaching that affects your conscience. It means it's moral. It means it upholds God's law. It means it cares about holiness. And if you sit under good preaching that is affecting your conscience, that's a very good thing. And in fact, that's an essential thing because not only the culture and the world we live in, but even our own hearts and our own flesh are constantly trying to kill our conscience. And a dulled or dead conscience is awful because your conscience is a gift from God. No matter how much the world wants to be experienced and kill innocence. There is something about a pure, undefiled, unguilty conscience that is desperately important. And there are serious consequences to losing a conscience. For example, uh, raise your hand if you've seen the movie Pinocchio. Now, put your hand down if you've only seen the newer Pinocchios. Ah, there it is. You know there are three Pinocchios that came out this year? crazy. I'm talking about the one from 1940, OG Pinocchio, the best one, surprisingly traumatizing for a children's movie. And some of you are shaking your heads, you understand. And I think the point that you probably remember is the donkey part, right? Probably? Yeah. Those of you who don't know, Pinocchio is a puppet. He's becoming a real boy. And one of the essential parts of becoming a real boy is listening to your conscience. And in Pinocchio, the conscience is a cricket named Jiminy Cricket, super likable cricket, my favorite cricket. In the movie, eventually, Pinocchio and Jiminy, his conscience, go to a place called Pleasure Island, which is basically a big carnival full of rides and fun and cigars for some reason, and cotton candy. And Pinocchio makes a friend, and that friend tells him that he should get rid of Jiminy because Jiminy as Pinocchio's conscience destroys fun. That's the friend's argument. And Pinocchio believes it for a little bit. So he tells Jiminy, go away, you are ruining our chance to have fun. But what happens is that both Pinocchio and his new friend don't realize that when the conscience is gone and they indulge in all of this pleasure and excitement and fun and entertainment, that there's a cost that needs to be paid. And eventually that cost they find out is being turned into a donkey and sent for labor. Very dark. And ultimately Pinocchio ends up being freed from that really horrific future because he listens to his conscience. And the whole point of that story is actually to tell you something very profound. Number one, 
unrestrained and unrestricted pleasure becomes slavery. You gotta know that. If you want to indulge pleasure with zero restrictions, it will capture you and it will not let you go. But the second is this, an essential way to freedom is to listen to your conscience and to have a built up and stronger conscience. And when you have preaching that affects your conscience and builds it up and makes it stronger, it will free you from sin. It will take you away from sin. It will remove you from more guilt and more shame that you could have walked into if you ignored your conscience. So conscionable preaching matters. However, there's a problem with this. Because the way that our conscience is affected by the Bible is through God's law. It tells us what is good and what is bad. And if all you receive is the law, your conscience is going to go nuts all the time. Because we break God's law all the time. No matter how obedient we can be to the law and how much our conscience can follow God's law, ultimately we need to understand sin is still a big deal and sin is unavoidable to a degree. And so you need more than just preaching that affects your conscience. You need freedom from the ultimate guilt of sin. You need to understand salvation is not in the law but in the gospel. And that means you need to make sure the law fits in its proper place in your worldview. And I want to describe that as spiritual preaching, which is freedom from the spirit. You need preachers who trust the spirit, are led by the spirit, and it affects the way they preach. And if that sounds a little bit mystical, which it totally could, I want to explain exactly what I mean by that. I think it means a lot of things, but in order to help you identify what spirit-filled preaching looks like, let me give you two qualifications. First of all, spirit-filled preaching gives us spiritual balance. Spirit-filled preaching gives us spiritual balance. And what I mean is this. Ultimately, it wasn't humans who wrote the Bible. It was God's Holy Spirit writing the Bible. Scripture is God-breathed, that literally means from God's spirit, which means a spirit-filled preacher trusts the Bible. And because the spirit urges them to trust the Bible and they conform to it, they know the Bible has a right balance between law and gospel. Is law good and important? Absolutely. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 and 11, that the law is good and profitable and it is not contrary to God's promises. Is the law ultimate? and an appropriate method for our salvation? No, full stop, 15 periods, exclamation mark. The law cannot save you. But the Holy Spirit organized scripture in such a way that God would explain to you the gospel ultimately saves you and the law helps you live the way God would desire you to. The gospel saves you and it frees you to obey the law, to honor and love God and grow in holiness, not to save you. That's the first part of spirit-filled preaching, but the second one is this. Spirit-filled preachers trust God's spirit. Spirit-filled preachers trust God's spirit. Ultimately, a preacher understands their skill can't save you. God's word can save you, and you believing God's word will save you. No preacher, including myself, can do that. Their goal is to explain the words clearly, 
It's the Holy Spirit's job to make sure your heart believes the truth. A good preacher has a tone and a style that helps you understand they don't believe they can force you to believe the gospel. Only the Holy Spirit can soften your heart to accept the gospel. Only the Holy Spirit. That's why spirit-filled preachers trust the Holy Spirit to do the work and trust the Spirit bringing the words of Scripture to balance to make it clear. You could sum it up this way. Good preachers explain the law in light of the gospel, and they trust that only the Spirit can bring the conviction of the law and the comfort of the gospel to the congregation's heart. You need preaching that helps you know God's law is good, but to know that the gospel is better. That's what you need. And ultimately, it gets down to the last two distinctives, which is this. Good preaching is humble and hopeful. Good preaching is humble and it's hopeful. Paul came to the Corinthians, he says in verse 3, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He understood he wasn't very attractive. He understood he wasn't a perfect speaker. He understood his reputation was not very good. And he also knew that his reputation might get worse because the Corinthians themselves might also reject and insult and attack and imprison him. But he also understood that he was a sinner too. And it's difficult to explain why sin is a big deal to people when you know how deep your own sin is. That's why Paul was humble. Paul did his best, was faithful to the end, and was confident, not in his skill or his own sufficiency, but because God gave him sufficiency by clarifying the gospel to him so he could make it clear to other people. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, where Paul says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. This is the point, guys. Beware of preachers who draw attention to themselves. Beware of preachers who like to talk about their degrees or their experiences or their own skill. Look to preachers who are honest and vulnerable with their own sin and will point you to the cross because that's the same cross they have to trust in too. That's humble preaching. But you also need something more than just humble preaching because I think a lot of people, especially if they understand sin appropriately, they won't be as humble as they will be humiliating. Not just humiliating to other people, but humiliating to themselves. Because there are a lot of preachers who will spit on themselves. They will give you the lowest view of themselves possible, and it can be so depressing. That's why you need more than just humility. You also need hope. Because even though sin brings you low, preaching the message of the cross lifts you up. Because everything about the gospel and everything about God's plan is ultimately leading to hope. It's ultimately leading to God putting everything together again. For example, the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, verse 3 to 4, John says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The gospel is good news. It is the greatest news. And when you listen to preachers who believe how good that news is, they will be passionate, they will be patient, they will be joyful, and they will be excited. Because even though our sin is great, our Savior is greater. And that's why you need that balance of humility and hope. And as we wrap up that last distinction, let me draw your attention to it very briefly as we conclude to tell you this. Humility and hope are also necessary for you as you judge preachers. If you want to go to a church and you want to be a faithful congregant and you want to spot a healthy church because you know what faithful preaching is, you need humility and you need hope. I am not trying to give you this information so you can go around judging preachers. That's not what this is about. Because honestly, I think we would all be very, very humble and we'd critique a lot less if we had to switch places with the preacher. I think we'd admit that. And so as you listen to preaching, you can point out weaknesses. You can understand things that could be corrected or critiqued. But especially if you're going to share it with anyone, don't forget grace. Because the grace that saved you from being a sinner is the same grace motivating a person who's not a perfect preacher. You're never going to find that person. You're never going to find a preacher who can never be corrected or always explain the gospel perfectly or always get the emphasis of the text right. But when you have people who understand that, they are amazing people to listen to. You just need to understand that you can still listen to them if they're not perfect. And that's also why you need hope. You need hope when you're discerning preachers because you know what? All of you live in Orange County where there's a million places and churches to choose from. But one day you might be that person in a small town where there's one faithful church or there's only one church. And you might have to sit under preaching that the preacher doesn't have your personality and they don't talk about all the topics that you want to hear or feel like you need to hear or do all of the illustrations that are really appealing or uh, go through the book of the Bible that you love. But listen, that's most churches. That's most faithful churches. And you need to have hope that you don't need to listen to a perfect preacher. You just need to listen to a preacher who will give you Christ. There is hope for you in the midst of that, just as there's hope that they will grow in their ability to preach and train others to preach. Let me close with this verse. Ephesians chapter 3.10, Paul says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. God is going to prove his glory through the church. That's insane. That's crazy when you know that Christians are still sinners and they're still weak and they're still finite and they're still limited and they're still not perfect. God's still going to show his wisdom through that and he's still going to show his wisdom through imperfect preachers like Paul. Because ultimately, as he says, the power is in the spirit and in the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Ultimately, you can have hope. 
if you find people who are faithful to the gospel and want to be more faithful to the gospel. That's all you'll need to be in a healthy church, ultimately. Let's pray. Father, we're going through so many details, and there's so much to learn on this topic, and there's no way in one sitting we could talk about every single thing that you have for us on preaching or teaching or any of that. But Father, you've given us so much in your word to understand. We just pray you would make it clear. Let us be humble and hopeful people as we um, try to understand why you've given us this thing called preaching and why it's so important and how we can grow and thrive in our Christian lives by sitting under faithful preaching. Please help us to be people who would grow now as we listen to preaching, even as we listen to your word in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. Help us to be people who can understand that it is part of this amazing plan that you have to save your people, to grow your people, and to make your people more expectant of heaven. Father, please change us and conform us to your word. And we thank you that we can be confident that you will do so. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.